Australia's own record is now under fresh scrutiny as expressions of solidarity flow from the families of Indigenous people who died in custody. More than 450 First Nations people have died in custody since the inquiry delivered its findings, five since the start of last month. These are just some of It was of one faces. of the many incidents at the Dongdao Youth Detention Centre that sparked a royal commission into the Northern Territory's youth justice system. Let's get the message out there. Enough is enough. Australia will not tolerate anymore. Welcome to another episode of What Happens Next. I'm Dr Susan Carland. Over the next two episodes, we will take a look at Indigenous incarceration in Australia. Over 30 years ago, a royal commission was set up to investigate black deaths in custody. But what did we learn from that inquiry? Why are Indigenous incarceration rates in this country so high still? Stories of racial and ideological profiling and brutality from police to a legal system that often leaves families and survivors feeling let down have many wondering what society could look like if we fail to reimagine our policing and justice systems. What are some of the policies and initiatives that are needed to address the issue? Our guests are Professor Jacinta Elston from Monash University, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island human rights lawyer Mina Singh and criminologist Dr Kate Burns. Welcome to part one of Indigenous Incarceration on What Happens Next. I think for myself and most other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we'd see uh, the Indigenous incarceration rates being driven predominantly by systemic bias, um, issues of racism and the long-term impacts of a colonial structure. Professor Jacinta Elston is the inaugural Pro Vice-Chancellor Indigenous at Monash University and Director of the William Cooper Institute. That drives not just the fact that we've got people who are disenfranchised in our communities, but it also drives the way that they're dealt with in the criminal justice system. Right. So when you say systemic bias, what do you mean? What does that look like? I think the system is biased towards um, many and most Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the context of the way that they transition through a system. So we've got lots of... um, great work that's happened over many years by um, Aboriginal and non-Indigenous leaders to create safer environments for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are um, coming into contact with the criminal justice system and particularly in youth. Um, And so things like Koori Courts and um, Murray Courts in Queensland, all of those sort of things have been really important. The initiatives like that are about trying to address a systemic bias that sits inside of um, systems and our society that means that um, Indigenous mob may not have um, had the same sentencing outcomes as um, their peers for the same types of crimes. You know, it's comparing apples and apples instead of apples and oranges. And when you look at our our mob, and I remember some work that was going on at ANU by uh, Indigenous colleagues there and and others, um, where they were actually comparing the, um, the crimes that people committed the interactions that happened with them during that sentencing process 
Um, you know, did they get remanded? Um, did they um, get out of jail? Get out on bail? Uh, do they? Um, uh, do they end up serving more time than their counterpart who's non-Indigenous for the same type of crime with the same type of criminal history behind them? All of those issues kind of led that group of colleagues to say actually there was a systemic bias that was against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that meant that they were more likely to receive harsher penalties in sentencing than others for the same sorts of crimes. And so, you know, we have to kind of come back and think about what is it inside of our society, inside of our systems that predisposes Indigenous people to be disadvantaged right from the start. Right. So sort of looking further up the river, not just looking at the end of the river where people are drowning, but what's for causing the people to fall, fall in the river, river in the first, in the first place. place? Yeah. We've had a history that has deliberately given us disadvantage over the period of, you know, 230 odd years. Mina Singh is a Yorta Yorta and Indian woman and legal director at the Human Rights Law Centre. If you look at the different policies and practices that have been imposed on Aboriginal people since British invasion, uh, practices of removal from the land, of, of massacres, of, of ill health, of, um, of, of, you know, to this century of, of stolen generation. Um, those are the things that all uh, create vulnerabilities for Aboriginal people. They um, take away the strengths of community uh, for Aboriginal people. And they're the things that make us more likely to be, um, or it's rather, more, us have far greater rates of likelihood compared to non-Aboriginal people because us collectively have been through those things. And people often think about colonisation as something that happened in the past, that we're done with, that we're in a post-colonial society, when really we're still in a colonial society and we're still experiencing the impacts, the long-term intergenerational impacts of those policies. So, you know, it's not just our um, criminal law and order type issues that disproportionately affect us. There are a whole range of other issues. Dr Kate Burns is a criminologist at Monash University. She agrees that the impacts of intergenerational disadvantages and trauma all contribute to such high rates of incarceration in the Indigenous population. There's Obviously, there's not easy solutions, but part of it is about... Um, a lot of the reasons are related to colonisation and the, the effects... So tell us about what are the knock-on effects that we would be seeing today that are the echoes of what happened 200-odd years ago that would lead to increased in incarceration? Yeah. So we see um, obviously the ongoing trauma and inter intergenerational trauma that we, we see um, across the generations, um, ingrained poverty and disadvantage, marginalisation. Uh, and this is happening generation after generation. And so, um, and we also see issues of institutionalised uh, racism. Um, and we see that throughout the criminal justice system. What does uh, that look like? So uh, the reality is that um, Indigenous Australians are over-policed. Um, what does that mean? So what that means is that Indigenous Australians don't commit more crimes or more serious crimes, but they are more likely to be stopped by police, they're more likely to be arrested and charged, they're more likely to be convicted and they're more likely to have a sentence of incarceration. 
And so we see that in comparison to non-Indigenous people. So we can see the reality of that. Our podcast normally asks our guests to cast their minds a few decades into the future and says, if we don't change things now, what does our future look like? For the topic you're here to talk about, I feel like we're in an unusual position where we're kind of already in the dystopian future. So I'm actually going to ask you to cast your mind 30 years back at that sliding doors moment when we had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody and what that moment asked of us and where we could have gone and where we are. I think the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody was a watershed moment actually. 30 years ago, the Royal Commission that I was part of uh, made recommendations uh, to the Parliament, 339 recommendations. That commission had been set up by the Hawke Government. Any inquiry which did not have the status of a Royal Commission would be unacceptable. And the report and the recommendations set out a roadmap. At that time, there were 99 deaths that we were concerned about in this nation to, to effect a national Royal Commission. They uh, are able to show that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, but also pointed to a lot of issues about institutional racism, but also broader than that is actually looking at what are these community-based solutions. And also they recommended self-determination and, and, and such. So 30 years ago, this roadmap was set out and it was really clear how um, this issue could be addressed. And so I think your setup was actually a really good one because we know what has happened in the last 30 years is that those recommendations were not implemented fully. And we can see that the over-representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia has actually got worse. Deaths in custody has actually increased. This is a time to actually reflect and think, okay, so what can we do? Because actually if we don't do anything now, things are going to get worse for the next 30 years and we're going to keep seeing it getting worse. Once the Royal Commission uh, released its findings, since then, how many of those findings have been implemented or recommendations, sorry? So it's one of those things that it depends on who you ask because I think um, perhaps governments would say many of them have been implemented. But what we can see by actually looking at the recommendations and what the outcomes of that has been, some of them might have been partially implemented but not fully. And so actually most of them haven't been implemented fully. Sometimes it is just the nature of a Royal Commission that two or three years later is when the report is released, the recommendations um, are there, but people uh, and the urgency of the issue have perhaps moved on to another issue and so the momentum to implement those recommendations um, isn't isn't there. And so we, we, we've, we saw that with the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Um, I mean, we, we saw it recently actually with the Royal Commission in Northern Territory, which was called after um, the Four quarters, um, Corners um, episode, which looked into the mistreatment of um, children that were incarcerated in the Juvenile Justice Centre there uh, in Dondale. The Royal Commission was called, there was urgency, there was a real push to implement the recommendations. At the time, the government said that they would implement it. 
Now, a couple of years later, we're seeing actually that a lot of that isn't being implemented. Actually, they've, they're just passing legislation now that is actually going to um, make it worse for uh, children and actually easier for them to be incarcerated. And so it's actually going backwards. Um, not all royal commissions. This doesn't happen with all of them, but it can happen in a lot. I mean, we, we saw in Victoria uh, with the royal commission into family violence recently they the government did commit to implement all recommendations and they and um, most of them have been implemented so far so it's not that a royal commission um it, it's not that all royal commissions don't have uh, i guess the, the outcomes it's just that it's about political will for the, the recommendations to be implemented right which makes me wonder if the federal government was willing to invest the time and effort for this Royal Commission 30 years ago, why not then have the will to implement the findings? Which is a really good question. But I think part of it is that a lot of the solutions to this issue outside the criminal justice system, it's about health, it's about housing, it's about um, education and employment. And actually it's also reckoning with um, colonisation and the ongoing effects. They're issues that perhaps don't have the same political uh, attractiveness as, say, being tough on crime and pouring money into the criminal justice system, which is what we have seen. You know, we see that, you know, for for. Every time a sort of a state uh, election comes up, we're seeing this tough on crime being punitive, um, and so I guess that there's not the same it's not the same political will to implement policies that are actually going to one reckon with colonisation and the effects, but also thinking that these broader issues about health and housing and education are, I guess, harder ones to uh, address, but they can be addressed. So it is, but it is about political will, but it's also about funding um, adequate, adequately. Look, I think the positives out of the Royal Commission was that it happened. Professor Jacinta Elston on the Royal Commission. Uh, was that it highlighted 331 things that needed action. Um, you know, if we didn't have the language of the Royal Commission into Black Death and Custody to be able to... Um, challenge now, how much worse would it be? How much more would be hidden about what's broken in the system? So I think that in itself, the fact that it happened was a positive. Of course, whether or not we've done enough with all of the things, and actually I was watching um, something recently on the drum that sort of was about talking about Indigenous um, incarceration rates and, you know, I kind of thought to myself, what if we did it again? Would we find anything different? How many of the 331 recommendations, I think that's what the number was, how many of those recommendations would still be current? Um, how many extra ones would we need? Uh, would we have replaced some with something else? You know, it would be an interesting exercise but not necessary because out of 331, um, there's probably, I don't know, 100, 120 that have been actioned. We could just start to say, okay, which of the ones that we haven't actioned still need to be actioned and what can we do about them? What's our next action that's going to actually get us to somewhere different? One big thing I think, sadly, is that people, lots and lots of people just don't care. Mina Singh. Um, 
you know, there's a real narrative around around people who offend that they're no longer part of society, that they're no longer people to worry about or care about. And, well, you know, if you don't want to, you know, be treated badly in prison or die in prison, don't do the wrong thing. You know, there's very simplistic views about these issues. And I think also coupled with the sentiment that um, the idea that's been, you know, nurtured since British invasion that Aboriginal people are inherently criminal and that there's inherently something wrong with us that leads us to this. Um, it creates a very one-sided argument about the issues. And I think, sadly, too much of our responses in terms of laws and policies are trapped in election cycles. But to secure your future, the road ahead depends on a strong economy. And that's why there is so much at stake at this election. And so, you know, people don't necessarily vote for human rights issues. They vote for the things that keep themselves and their families safe and strong. There are real challenges before this country. The challenge of overcoming the deep recession, insecure work, increased frequency of natural disasters. But what we have from this you know, we really need to get more and more people concerned about this issue, um, concerned about the disadvantage of Aboriginal people. And um, I think we've just seen policy after policy. You know, we've, we've never really had uh, a proper, fully committed plan for implementing all of the recommendations of the Royal Commission. Um, you know, things, you know, police, so one example is a, a police no, uh, in-custody notification service. Um, so the Royal Commission said that um, whenever an Aboriginal person is taken into, into custody that uh, the Aboriginal legal service should be contacted and advised about that. Um, we only have custody notification services in three um three states um, and yeah it's it's just you know the recommendations haven't been properly implemented haven't been properly considered imagine australia continues down the same path that is now um, with indigenous incarceration what do we look like in 50 years if nothing changes oh i think the level of despondency anger depression Grief and loss within the Aboriginal community will grow, Indigenous community will grow. Uh, I think there will be a stronger sense of helplessness by everybody about we can't change the system, we can't do anything about it. Um, it'll become an other's problem. It's somebody else's problem. It's not our problem. Um, I mean, you know, if, if you took this apart and looked at the various states and territories, in the Northern Territories, the incarceration rates of Aboriginal mob are just heartbreakingly atrocious. Like, really, there's no other way for us to deal with this. We can't invest 
the billions of dollars that we spend on criminal justice system in the Northern Territory in a different way. We can't say to a young Aboriginal person who's fronting up to a magistrate, well, if we put you in jail, it's going to cost us 120000 this year. But in fact, what if we invested that in you? What would that look like if we completely changed the way that we look? And I think it takes that level of bravery, that level of courage for us to sort of say, no, as a society, we're not going to be this type of society. I fear that we'll have an even more greatly divided country that still is yet to come to a reckoning with its own past. And finally, here's Mina Singh again. And I see more prisons, tougher crimes, uh, sorry, tougher um, laws on crime, um, but really that we're more and more punishing difference and we're punishing poverty and the things that make people vulnerable and keep them marginalised and out of that mainstream narrative. Um, and I feel that, you know, we'll just simply see disadvantaged even more entrenched and uh, unless we take a really long um, long game approach to it with lots of things we can do immediately but lots of you know an approach that this takes a long-term commitment to uh, to address yeah I I don't like to think what we end up like (laughs) That concludes our first episode on this topic. As our experts have explained, it's been a long history of systemic bias and institutionalised racism in the criminal justice system that continues to impact Australia's Indigenous population. Next week, our experts discuss the ways these issues can and should be addressed. Catch you next time on What Happens Next. What Happens Next.